and welcome to Creative Lives, the Lecture in Progress podcast. Lecture in Progress is an online resource that inspires and informs the next generation of talent by providing practical advice and insight into the creative industry. This podcast series features a broad range of people talking about what they do and how they got to where they are. Our guest this week is Natalie Kane. My name is Natalie Kane and I'm curator of digital design at the VNA and one half of Haunted Machines. As a curator at the VNA, it's Natalie's job to think about how the museum collects, cares for and displays digital objects. The VNA has been collecting digital work for the last like, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 years. So in the last five years, our department has really done a focus on that. And it went from being the contemporary department to digital architecture and design. We're now at a point where we're kind of tying in five years of research and five years of work to think about what this needs to be now. And that's part of my role from being there was to try and kind of have someone to look after that properly. So it's, it's quite new. Because a lot of the objects that I bring in are very complex and don't really have easy boundaries or easy borders they're not like a chair it's like a, an internet connected a service or product design based product design which has like the internet going through it so there's a level of complexity there and a lot of it's also just things like writing and trying to find some headspace to think about kind of what digital design is part of this means looking after the museum's collection of more contemporary objects in rapid response collecting which includes everything from Katy Perry branded eyelashes to 3D printed guns. Usually we find an object which tells a story about a particular event that happened. So we have anything from the Liberator, which is a 3D printed gun, which was the first one that was printed by Cody Wilson, and which obviously has come quite recently back into the news again because of the laws that have happened around various legislators in the US saying that maybe we can circulate these files, maybe it is okay. And him taking them to court and kind of winning, but not really successfully. Um, two things like the pussy hat, which was instrumental in the, the women's march in response to Trump. Um, and the reason why we see that as a digital design object rather than being a fashion object is because it was only really made possible disseminated through online platforms and it became huge as a result of that. And we kind of try to look for objects which you can tell a story without having to have too much necessary kind of like other things to it. So you can kind of look at an object and go, I don't know why it's there next to like an Eames chair. Like, why is Katy Perry eyelashes next to some literature from the Bauhaus? And it's because we want you to kind of use the frame and the construction of a museum to really interrogate that object in a kind of way that I guess you're used to other things. But it's all about kind of opening up the world beyond the object so that it's very, very explicit. So we'll say we collected this because it, for instance, the Katy Perry eyelashes, because of the issues around mass manufacturing, labour laws, and what we understand artisanal to be because they were kind of sold as artisanal. The boring, but I find it quite interesting part of bringing objects into collection where it's like you will log the item, but you also have to write kind of like a mini essay about everything you can collect. So justification is something that I always write. And it means that you get a really nice depth of understanding what the object is. You get to kind of find some interesting stories about it. It's, it's kind of like a mix between academia and journalism, but where you don't have to necessarily use academic language, but you want to tell a story of the object, which is going to be as useful as possible for the next person who comes and looks at it. In my collection, there's a couple of objects that I've collected recently that I've been really pleased about. So the, the portraits of Chelsea Manning by Heather Dewey Hagborg, I kind of collected because I wanted to kind of show an alternative about what design could be and how we think about design. Because also when you think about it, it just being like something that you make and something that does something and solves a problem. But I wanted to kind of highlight the issues around the design of a, a thing called DNA phenotyping, which is seems as a quite scientific surface, but actually is deeply designed. Like there are UX designers who work on it. There are people who make sure the interface is as user-friendly as possible, but it's used often in kind of police and judicial circumstances to kind of, you saw the inside of your mouth and then it kind of gives an idea of what they think the person looks like. Now, these are based on histories of very prejudiced and racist and sexist data sets. So often 
these people either don't look like, or like a very generic or very stereotypical way of looking. And so but it, the reason why it was so interesting for us to collect the Heather Dewey Hagball portraits of Chelsea Manning was because at the time they were made, Chelsea Manning didn't have any likeness that she really identified with. So when she sequenced the DNA, she chose female because um, she was in transition at that time. So she was able to kind of control her representation, even if it's still a bit problematic. And these are the conversations that you can kind of bring into a museum that you wouldn't be able to if I just collected, like, the interface of DNA phenotyping. So using objects to tell kind of alternate stories. Natalie shares some of the personal and institutional challenges involved in collecting objects and putting together exhibitions. There's a point at which kind of working in a big museum is hugely, political is not the right word, but it's like it's you have to know the right people and you have to put yourself out there and you have to kind of make yourself known. And it means like my first month was just going for like 15 coffees every week or something to kind of try and get to know who was around. All my collection items come through a conversation with my other curators in my department. I don't kind of decide and then that's it because it kind of doesn't, it's not really fair in some ways, but it's just like I get to decide without any argument what comes in. It's like those people are there to interrogate me and to intellectually challenge me in that way. But the actual process of bringing stuff in, it's weird because like you really get such a strange way of handling everyday objects from doing it. So for instance, I've got, I now have like curator hands, which is where I can't pick up anything in my house or other people's houses without doing various rules where it's like when things come in, you have to use two hands, it has to be kept close to the body, you have to have a flat surface, you can't like wave things around, that kind of thing. It gives you a very weird sense of your own body and objects and what you understand objects to be and suddenly everything goes from being very mundane to quite extraordinary which is one of the nice things I've, I've now got as a result of having like this brain in my head but yeah but to a quite then you have the cataloging and then eventually we figure out where to put it on the show or put it on display and then it kind of goes there for life or until we change the display in addition to her work at the vna natalie is also the co-founder of curatorial research project haunted machines Founded together with designer and artist Tobias Revel, the project examines some of the narratives we construct around technology. And so far, the pair have explored ideas regarding magic, ghosts, and mythology. The VNA enables me to see the work that I'm doing at Haunted Machines a different way, in the same way that Haunted Machines informs my criticality and makes me think about all the structures and frameworks that I work through at the VNA on a regular basis and all the things that, that me and Tobias talk about. Occasionally, obviously, it gets a bit stressful. It's like we've got two things on at one go, but I always feel like my VNA work is better as a result of the stuff that I've done with Haunted Machines and vice versa as well. Natalie tells us why some recent work was one of her most exciting projects from last year. One of them was in October last year. Me and Tobias Revel, who were Haunted Machines, had our festival at Impact Festival in Netherlands, which was like a three or four day festival based on looking at why we talk about technology in terms of magic and like why do we always default to like speculation and mythologies when we can't really figure out what something is doing and also why do we allow people to act like magic is happening to us so a good example is like apple saying it just works or it's just magic like what does that do to you as a user and a consumer of that technology how much agency do you have and so we had like an exhibition for three weeks with some incredible wonderful artists like Manira Kadiri and Naveen Kandosos, Ingrid Burrington, um, Ali Vaganecht, um, I, I can't name them all, but these people who I've always been really excited by because they've always, they've had that core of their work of like using the mythological, using the fantastic as a way to deal with a really difficult thing. And then we had like a three-day kind of conference where all these people talked and had really wonderful open conversations about it. And it was it's like a collaboration of about three or four years work, but it was the peak of that. And now we explored enough to now know what we want to do next and what we want to explore next. 
And second thing is working with Forensic Architecture for the London Design Biennale, which is a real baptism of fire for me because I've never worked in a Biennale before. They are insane. They are like no other exhibition I've ever worked in. It's so highly like slick and coordinated and you're working with 40 different people and it's just, it, it was kind of one of the most exhausting but interesting experiences in terms of exhibition making. But we worked with them to do an exhibition about how a group of uh, volunteers from Yazda, who are kind of an NGO, are helping to kind of map sites of genocide and cultural heritage destruction for the Yazidi people in northern Iraq, who unfortunately had a, a systematic mass of violence put upon them by ISIS. And it's quite a serious case. It's quite, a, and, it's, and it was really, I don't know, I've learned a lot about UN charters for genocide, and I've spoken to a lot of very brilliant, interesting humanitarian people who are like both deeply cynical, but also like hopeful and like trying to figure out actually the reason why we're doing this exhibition is to put it alongside those sort of more wow experiences of design you get in Biennales where it's like everything's very beautiful and something's really integrative, but it's because of the materials it's using. This is more like, this is what design could be if we understand it as design. And if we understand like reappropriating these tools of like architectural modeling to DIY camera rigs, to looking at what that reconstruction of photogrammetry looks like, design has these different ways it can be interrogative and I think that's that's why I like their work. Originally an English graduate from Portsmouth University, Natalie traces the career path that led her to curation, a journey that saw her go from various volunteering roles and learning to code to creating exhibitions. So I studied English literature at Portsmouth University and I had an idea of what I thought English was going to be, which is that I'd be sitting around reading books, talking high ideas about like, I don't know, Beckett or whatever. And it's slightly different to what I expected. And I think it's, I still learned a lot and I still got a lot out of it in terms of, it opened me up to a whole world of different thinking. But the thing that I really took away from it was, which I didn't think I really needed until much later, was like the critical thinking aspect of it. And like, this is why I think literature is amazing because like all of the ability to literally, without being too corny, like read between the lines and something. And also to like find out what other people thought about things. My very wonky career trajectory is that I went from doing English literature at Portsmouth to completing half the masters and then quitting because it just it was doing critical theory and I just didn't want to do it anymore because it was too isolating for me. And so I decided to start volunteering at art galleries and I was at Fabrica in Brighton for a bit and then I became a workshop assistant there. And then I ended up volunteering at Lighthouse in Brighton, which is a digital arts and culture agency, which I, where I met a mentor of mine, Ona Harja, who uh, continues to be a friend and mentor. But she kind of opened me up to this completely different side of, of artwork that I didn't know was possible. I always had this assumption of like, the work that I kind of was really interested in was like weird kinetic machine art. And I was like, oh, I wonder why I like these things. And she was like, oh, actually, there's this whole field of people who are using art as a way to, to unbutton all these things about design and capitalism and the systems at play by using art and artistic method as a way of doing it. So one of the first jobs I ever did with the Lighthouse was recreating a fake newsroom for Julian Oliver's uh, and Daniel Vassilias news tweak, where basically you can use this browser to hack any news website in the world. It's local, you can't do it literally. But it was the whole performance of doing that was just completely fascinating to me. I was like, actually, there is this massive disciplinary lessness that exists in this world. And so I volunteered there for a bit and eventually ended up working for them. Um, but I learned how to code during this time as well. So I just thought it was a skill that I would like to have. And, and I ended up messing around and got a job as a storyteller and technologist at Lighthouse, which is the best business card I've ever had. And then became to be a programme assistant and produced some of the exhibitions and worked with artists there. And eventually went up to Future Thing in, in Manchester, where I was a curator for a bit. But I originally joined, I think, as a, I think it was a programme assistant or copywriting. and pro So like lots of weird things where it's like, I didn't initially go through a very traditional curatorial th thing. It was more like writing and producing and getting to know artists and that kind of thing. And then 
halfway through my time of future thing, I kind of bumped up to curator because I'd done a bit of work with them. And I basically put myself forward and said, can I curate this bit, please? And then eventually uh, I applied for the VNA job just because I had a weird skill set where I think I have a quite keen understanding about what technology is doing in the world in some ways. And that's one of why I left that very sort of niche world. Because I was like, I want to see what I can do with translating that stuff. So in terms of skills for a curator, I was looking at the Ask a, a Curator hashtag recently and there was a bit of a furore about the idea of like what the skills and, and qualities are needed to be a curator. And I think it was so interesting to see people debate that in public because I think the role of a curator is changing rapidly. You speak that you have to have an art history degree or a design history degree and then you'd go and volunteer for five years as an assistant curator and, and you'd go and do this and eventually you might get a curator position at like 38 or something. But that's not really how I think it functions anymore and, and not my experience of it now because I am someone who does not have any of those qualifications. I have a degree in English literature and then I went away and volunteered at various places and just made my own stuff happen with a lot of help and a lot of collaborations but in terms of being a good curator now in particular like a good contemporary curator it's like an extreme openness an extreme curiosity and it's like and knowing that not to assume the service level or something and always to know there's something else behind it and there's other people you can talk to and just not just taking the story as it's written and, and I guess that's somewhere where we sit between like journalism history and academia it's like you can't just kind of say oh well this was designed by this person like, but why was that person the person who wrote and who are the other people who were working at that time like what voices aren't being represented and I think we have a lot of work to do as curators to ensure that when we come to our jobs we come to our roles and we come to wanting to be curators just full stop it's like you have to acknowledge like the work you have to do to demystify and open up and diversify kind of curatorial practice because otherwise like, I'm sick of seeing people think like oh it's this really precious practice that we have to look after and it's like I'm kind of happy if it becomes a bit weird and broken now because that's still curating for me like it's not as simple as that but in terms of other skills just like the more practical ones it's like extreme patience I've only been a museum curator for the last year. Before that, I've been like an exhibitions and festivals curator. And one of the things that I always joke about is like, you've just become a free therapist for artists and designers, which is fine because you, a lot of it is like about removing yourself from the room a little bit. And like you, I, I'm kind of definitely deaf to the superstar curator in that way. It's like, I don't see the benefit of it being about you. I and mean, the good curator kind of almost disappears into the woodwork a little bit and allows that person to do that. So you have to kind of like step away from wanting that in some ways. I think like the patience of that can help a little bit. Finally, Natalie shares some of her advice on using social media, being open about stress and the importance of being culturally aware. The advice I'd give to emerging creatives is very similar to ones I give to a lot of students, which is just like, again, get out there. And like, I know it's really difficult, especially if you're a bit on the shy side, a bit introverted. And that's where, again, social media can sometimes be quite quite a good a good thing for that. Whereas like, you make, can make yourself known in various ways, and then people know you and like when you approach them. And like, it's kind of a, a, a weirdly a bit like online dating in some ways, where it's like you you can kind of they get to know an idea of you, and then you meet, and then it, it might you might help, you might not, but. I think a lot of it is just like trying lots of things and not just being like, I just want to work in this space. And also just being kind to yourself. I'm a real fan of what I kind of call radical softness, which is the idea of like, it's okay for you to say that you're really stressed. It's okay for you to like not want to go to a thing. I'm so wary of the heritage of the superstar curator and the superstar, like I'm not going to mention any names, but we all know who we're talking about. Um, the idea of like them being this like bastion of cultural production and like what gets them through the door and what's there. And I'm always really wary of like what attitude people think you have to have to be able to do that. And it means that you can often be quite cruel to people and you can be unforgiving and like I always try to make a lot of time for students and people who are coming up in the industry because the, I had the same to me. And I think like, if I'd had more of that, then maybe I would have learned lessons quicker and that kind of thing. And a lot of it's just like, I don't know, I'm trying to sound like a self-help book, but like 
being like aware of the dynamics that are in your department who you're working with and whose voices aren't being represented and, and if you for instance like I always say to my students if you can't remember like the last people of colour that you've seen recently or women or people from like trans experience like go and find those people it's okay for you to like go and research and see that's there and then go and see that and like make sure that you're being constantly aware of those biases because that's something that you can sometimes forget about because you're so concerned with like seeming relevant and being very careful not to use those people as a means to seem relevant but actually as a genuine interest of wanting to bring those communities in that kind of thing um that's what I always try and be aware of and I definitely fail on that loads of times whereas like your brain just runs away with you and you're like oh god but I need to make sure that I've always got representation here and we were very careful about the font machines and like where we were just like, we want to make sure that there's never this problem. But obviously we still kind of go, oh, we could have done better. This episode of Creative Lives was brought to you by Lecture in Progress. It was presented by me, Marianne Hanoon, and the guest was Natalie Kane. The editor was Ivor Manley. Lecture in Progress is made possible with the support of a number of brand partners. They include us two, GF Smith, the Paul Smith Foundation, and Google. For more information, check out lectureinprogress.com.